Hello, church. Welcome to The Rock. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors. We're continuing our study of the book of Romans. This is part 26. We're going to be in chapter 8. If you want to turn there in your Bible, follow along on your handout. I titled this message, God is for us. So a few weeks ago, Bill said, obviously, the Bible is the greatest book ever written. Many think that Romans is the greatest book in the Bible, and many think that chapter 8 is the greatest chapter in the book of Romans. So we are ending, we're halfway through this study, and we're ending on some of the most encouraging, powerful verses in the entire Bible. These verses are incredible. They speak for themselves. I could have just written this sermon and been like, read that, go home. <laughs> but I'll elaborate a little bit. But these verses, I want them to be a great comfort and encouragement to all of you. So where are we overall in this series? We are finish, finishing season three today. We divided Romans into five seasons. Season one, God's sentence. God is holy and righteous and just, and we are not. We are wicked and sinful. That's the bad news. Then we went into the good news of God's salvation, the gospel, the best news ever. God gives his righteousness to everyone who believes by faith in Christ. And today, like I said, we're concluding season three, God's sanctification. For the last couple months, we've been talking about God's process of helping believers grow more like Christ and become less sinful. And then next week, we're going to move into season four, God's sovereignty. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to dive into probably one of the most encouraging sections in the entire Bible. So... Lord, we thank you for tonight. I thank you for Rocktoberfest and how you moved last night. I thank you for the amazing worship. I thank you for a room full of your brothers, your sons and daughters, my brothers and sisters that want to study your word. Lord, I ask you would bless our study of Romans right now. We say all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So our first verse today is really a capstone to Bill's teaching last week. He talked about how creation is groaning, our bodies are groaning, how the spirit groans, and we're all looking forward to heaven. So all of that is basically setting up Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This is one of the most quoted verses in the entire Bible. You will see it everywhere on shirts and baby onesies and hoodies and cups and wall decorations. It's so encouraging. We're going to put it all over the place. But we should make sure we understand what it is actually teaching us. First notice it says, we know, not we hope. We're guessing. We're pretty sure. We're like 50-50 on this. It says, we know these things. And then who is this promise given to? It says to those who love God. That's believers. But then it says those who are called by God. That means invited by God, summoned by God. That's also believers. I love that. Do you love Jesus? Yeah. This verse is for you. Has Jesus called you? This verse is for you. And then it says all things work together for good. That is quite the statement. That's the big things, the little things, the good things, the evil things, the hard things, all things. And that's pretty important because if you look at my prayer list, there's a lot of things going on in this room. We have hospitalization, surgery, marriage issues, depression, anxiety, job loss, grief, trouble with kids, trouble with parents, sickness, cancer, death, housing issues, financial trials, bankruptcy, and fears and other things. And this verse says God causes all things to work together for good. 
That's why this verse has brought so much comfort to so many Christians for so many years, because we can trust that God has a plan in the trial that we are going through. God can take whatever tragedy or heartbreak you're going through and work it all together for good. So you go, well, is that in this life or is that in the next life? I had breakfast with a friend last week, and he was telling me about his family growing up. And honestly, his family he came from was evil. Like wicked, evil things happened in his family growing up, and it was heartbreaking to hear this story. But then he told me, unprompted, how he sees how all of that evil in his family growing up prepared him for his life now. It was amazing that he saw the good in his life now from his terrible past, but that is not always the case. Many times we don't see the good now, so this verse must always be interpreted in light of eternity. Life can feel so random at times. This is teaching us that life isn't random. God has a plan in the sin, the pain, and the brokenness we're going through. He's going to work it all together for good. So in the middle of our suffering, we wonder, what is the point? And this verse teaches God is working it all together for good. Sometimes in this life, definitely in the next life. So the first blank on your handout, God doesn't always work everything out in this life, but he will in eternity. I'm reminded of that verse in Hebrews chapter 11 that we covered a year or two ago in the Hall of Fame of Faith. It says in 11:13 says, all these people were living by faith when they died. They had not received the promise yet. They saw them and welcomed them from afar. So Christian, you are called to believe that God can use the suffering in your life right now for good. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying we cling to this verse sometimes through tears, but we cling to this verse. Let's make it real. Right now in your life, what is the hard thing that you don't see any good in? What causes you to doubt God's goodness or God's wisdom or God's power? What causes you to doubt this verse? Church, we need to believe God's word, and we need to believe this verse that even through tears, and so this verse simultaneously like encourages me and challenges me. Lord, I want to believe your word. I want to believe this verse that you can work all things together for good, either in this life or the next. Let's go to the next two verses. 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So we're talking about foreknowledge and predestination and calling. That's where we're going to go in Romans season four. I'm not going to go there now. We're going to go there for the next few months. But we're going to get into election and predestination and God's sovereignty and man's responsibility and the calling of God and God's rule over both the individual and the nation. These two verses are just a teaser. But I'll say this, kind of to set up season four, all of those truths are meant to encourage you. God knew you. God picked you. God called you. That's amazing. And that isn't just a theme in Romans, that's a theme throughout Scripture. Look at Jesus' words in John chapter 6. He said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I remember when Tony taught on this, he talked about how draw means to drag or to pull or to persuade like a magnet. God drew you to himself. Isn't that amazing and encouraging? These truths we're going to cover the next couple months should like comfort us. They should cause us to worship God and they should motivate us to share the gospel with people. 
Wait, God called me and God's calling people all around me and I get to be part of that? That's amazing. There's two more points I want to make about these verses before we move on. When this train activates, notice those words. There's no stopping this. This is one of the strongest sections in the Bible on eternal security, how secure your salvation is. God knew you. He picked you. He called you. And at the moment of salvation, he justified you. We talked about that in season two of Romans. Justification means God declares you right. You have right standing with God. And then it's kind of wild. Paul says, those whom he justified, he also glorified in the past tense. That's kind of weird. Because what's glorification? That's where God removes sin from the life of the believer. It's where we're given a new glorified body and we're with the Lord forever in heaven. Bill talked about this last week. And maybe I'm confused, but I'm pretty sure we're not sinless. I'm pretty sure we're not living in our glorified bodies yet. I'm pretty sure this isn't heaven. I know that one for sure. But Paul is so confident that this is our future. When he speaks about glorification, he speaks about it in the past tense. Like it's done. You're glorified. Reminds me of the 1986 basketball movie Hoosiers. It's amazing. If you've never seen it, it's a true story of a tiny Indiana high school basketball team that wins the state title against all odds. There's this scene near the end of the movie. The team is playing in a game in the playoffs. It's all tied up, and this player, Ollie, gets fouled. Coach calls a timeout. The team gathers there on the bench, and coach is facing Ollie, and he says to Ollie, all right, listen. After Ollie makes his second free throw shot, get back on defense because they might have time for a desperation shot. I love that. The coach is so confident about the outcome that he speaks about Ollie's free throws in the past tense. That's exactly what Paul is doing right here. Christian, your future is so set that Paul says glorified. That's amazing. Second thought maybe not as encouraging, but critical to know. Do you see the good that God is bringing through our lives, through the difficult things? He says that we might be conformed to the image of his son. That is the good, the ultimate good, that God is bringing out of the difficult circumstances we are going through. God's good plan for us might not include good health that we want or good relationships or an awesome family life or financial success the good that God is ultimately interested in is that we would be brought, our lives would be brought into conformity with Jesus Christ. To conform to means to have the same pattern as. That's a profound thought. God is not necessarily interested in our earthly pleasures, although he brings us so much good in our life. The main thing God is working in our life is to make you more like Jesus Christ. Look at this quote by Johnny Erickson Tata. She's a Christian author and speaker. When she was 17 years old, she dived into some shallow water, broke her neck, and was paralyzed from like the shoulders down. For 56 years, she's been living as a quadriplegic. And she said this, sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. That's very powerful. So we ask ourselves, why do I have these medical issues? Why do I have this job loss? Why do I have this family drama Church, God is using these things to grow you more like Jesus Christ. Your second blank. God permits hard things in our lives to conform us or shape us or mold us to his son. So there is a purpose in your suffering. The Bible speaks of the time when we will see Jesus face to face 
and there'll be many parts of that conversation, but someday Jesus and I are going to have a conversation, and you will too. We're going to talk through the hardships in our life, the things that made me cry, the things that robbed me of sleep, the thing that when I heard the news, it was like I was kicked in the gut, the things that I told friends about, and I couldn't stop crying when I told them. We're going to discuss all of that, and we're going to see how God used every single one of those things to shape me and make me more like Jesus Christ. And the same thing is true of you. God never wastes anything. We have to cling to this truth. Tomorrow at work, tomorrow at home, when you get that phone call or you read that news story, these truths we're learning right now are for that moment. This is not like a series of interesting biblical lectures. These are truths you need to live your life tomorrow. All right, let's move to the last few verses, 31 through 39. We're wrapping up our sanctification, season three. This is the glorious conclusion of chapter eight. This is one of the most beautiful, famous, poetic sections in all of the Bible. Paul's basically going to talk about how God's love for us is like unbeatable. He does it by asking and answering a series of five questions. So he's basically saying, in light of everything, is there anything that could change our relationship with God? No, a million times no. God is for us. This section, 31 through 39, I also read at my grandpa's funeral many years ago. So let's start. 31. Maybe it's dying. There we go. I had to push harder. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What are these things? Is it what we just read? Is it chapter 8? Is it the first half of Romans? Yes. I'm not sure beyond that. <laughs> and then it says, if God is for us. But you should know the best reconstruction of the Greek is because God is for us, who can be against us? I was reminded of a different movie my kids and I watched, the 2019 cinematic masterpiece, Shazam. <laughs> There's this kid, Freddy, he gets picked on by the bullies in the movie, but at the end of the movie, Shazam and Superman join Freddy in the cafeteria for lunch, and the bullies know their bowling days are over. Because there's no messing with Freddy if Superman is on his side. Because Superman is for you, who can be against you? Christian, even more so, because God is for you, who can be against you? God is fighting for you. God is standing with you. Who can be against you? Seriously, who? Make this real again. Do you have any enemies? Do you have any coworkers that don't like you? Do you have any classmates that bully you? Do you have a family member that doesn't treat you very well? Because God is for you, who can be against you? Some of you think, well, I sin. I, I mess that up. When I sin, it changes all of this. Your sin does not change your standing with God. I think of John Newton. He was the captain of a slave ship for years. He was very involved in the slave trade, but then he became a Christian. He became a pastor. He started to fight against the slave trade very actively. Obviously, he wrote Amazing Grace. When he was 82 years old, he said this, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Christian, your sin isn't a problem for God because he dealt with it on the cross. Because God is for you, who can be against you? How does Paul demonstrate God being for us? Verse 32, 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is that greater to the lesser concept we've taught on before, that God gives you his son, why wouldn't he give you all things? In other words, Jesus died on the cross for your sins when you were his enemy. You don't think he'll throw in what you need for life and godliness now that you're his son or daughter? We can read God gave up his son. We've read it like so many times in church. It becomes like commonplace to us. We just blow right past it. But think about it this way. Here's my family on Tuesday. We went to Aiden's race at the cross-country meet at State There's my wife and my daughter. But I want you to think about my sons. They're 19, 18, 14, and 12. Before I say this, I need to say this. I love you all. I pray for you all. I think you're all amazing. Some of my best friends in the world are in this room. But just to be honest with you, if you were in a jam and you needed my son's life to make it out of that jam, I'll be attending your funeral. And if you were my enemy... Forget about it. (laughs) But God loved you so much, he gave his son to die for you when you were his enemy. That's unbelievable. God does things we wouldn't do, like give up his son for us. He even brings painful things into our lives that we would never give to our children. He is God. We are not. What struck me here was that God's nature is fundamentally different than me like giving up his son to save me, like bringing hard things into our lives to make us more like Christ. And then he gave up his son. Will he not graciously give us all things? Back to the verse. Make this real. This isn't some academic truth. This is truth you need for your life tomorrow. I wonder, Christian, what are you asking God for? If you're tempted not to ask him for things in prayer, look at what he already gave up for you. So we pray in faith, Lord, I would like this job. I'd like my parents and I to get along. I would like to be healed from this sickness. And we pray those prayers in faith because we know God's heart for us. At the same time, we know if God doesn't answer that prayer when we want or the way we want, he doesn't take that hard thing away. We know he's still using it for good to make us more like Jesus Christ. Amen? All right, next verse. Back a verse. So here's another question that Paul asks. Verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. This is another question that Paul asks and answers. Chapter, season 2 of Romans, I trust me, this abundantly clear. God justifies you. We talked about this. You are declared right in God's sight. You have right standing with God. Now, listen to me if you are new, if this is your first time at the rock. This is the news of the, this is the message of the Bible. God loves you. He wants to have you in heaven forever. But the Bible says we sin. We're earning eternal judgment through our sins. We can't work our way to heaven. But because God loved us, he gave up his son to die on the cross for our sins. We repent of our sins. We turn to him in faith. He helps us. We're born again. We have new life. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's the gospel. When that happens in your life, you are justified. You have right standing with God. It kind of reminds me of like a courtroom scene. You could imagine Satan going around accusing the Christian. Do you know know what she said to her kid last night? Do you know what he said to his wife last night? Do you know what she gossiped to her friend about this morning? Do you know what he looked at two days ago? Do you know what she did at school or he did at work? 
God like slam. I wish I had a big gavel right now, but it'd be like, God slams his gavel down. It's like justified, not because we're sinless, but because our sins were dealt with on the cross. So who can accuse someone that God has declared to be innocent? No one. Paul continues this courtroom scene, verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Before we unpack this, I want you to look at this verse in Revelation chapter 12. John writes, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. That's kind of wild. That means right now, Satan is in heaven accusing believers day and night. He is standing before God accusing Christians. So we look forward to the day when, they, when Satan gets tossed from heaven. But why would Satan accuse us? Because we're sinning. I sin, you sin. So why are we going to heaven then? Why are you going to heaven? It's right here in verse 34. Because Jesus Christ is the one who died. He died for me. He died for you. That's why we go to heaven. Someone had to pay the death penalty for your sins. It's either Jesus Christ on the cross or it's you in hell forever. Those are your choices, very binary. Jesus, God doesn't do double jeopardy. Your sins were dealt with, believer. There's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Your third blank. There's only one who could charge or condemn me, and he died for me. So you could see Satan accusing you. Do you. Did you see what your supposed son did? He's a pastor for crying out loud. Jesus speaks up, uh, let me see, yeah, I already paid for that one. <laughs> and then there's the verse 34 says at the end there, who is indeed interceding for us. You know that word intercede in the Greek means to make specific requests or intercessions for someone. In other words, Jesus is the high priest, is speaking to the Father for us. What do we call that, speaking to God? What do we call that? Prayer. Prayer. We typically think about what Jesus Christ did in the past, that he died on the cross for us. But this is what he's doing right now for you, Christian. He's interceding for you. Louis Burkhoff, a Christian author, he put it this way. He said, it is a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us, even when we are negligent in our prayer life, that he is presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which were not present to our minds, which we often neglect to include in our prayers. And that he prays for our protection against the dangers of which we are not even conscious and against the enemies which threaten us, though we do not notice it. He is praying that our faith may not cease and that we may come out victoriously in the end. Amen. So God, Jesus' love for you is seen in him interceding for you right now. Next verse, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? The sword means, in this context, the death penalty. So this truth that God loves us gets challenged by the troubles of life. So Paul lists them. Tribulation, those are the things in life that squeeze us. Distress means, in the original language, to get like pinned in. Some of you are feeling pretty squeezed or pinned in by life, emotionally, financially, physically, spiritually, relationally. Persecution is obviously religious persecution. History tells us the church in Rome was about to enter a huge period of persecution. 
famine, nakedness, danger, the sword. Those are all the results of persecution. Bottom line, the worst thing that life can throw at you cannot separate you from God's love for you. So that's our fourth blank. Suffering should drive us closer to God, not away from him. We live in a broken world. Suffering is coming our way. It's unavoidable, but God's love doesn't change. The only thing that can change is our response to the suffering. So now Paul illustrates that hardship is sadly the norm in this wicked world. He goes back to the Old Testament, verse 36. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's a quote from Psalm 44 in the Old Testament. This is a national lament in the Old Testament for the Jews after a national tragedy. It talks about the shock of the event, and it eventually turns to prayer. We can't read that verse and not be reminded of what happened in Israel a few weeks ago. In Psalm 22, it commands us to pray for peace in Jerusalem. And even in Romans 10, Paul says his prayer is that his Jewish brothers would become believers. I've been praying for Israel with my family the last few weeks. I would encourage you to do the same. But we wonder, why did he stick this verse in here? It's to show us that God's people have always been persecuted and killed. The world hates the people of God. It hated the Jews. It hates the Christians and Jews. Today, Jesus said as much in John 15. He said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So if you are suffering for your faith, you are joining with the heroes of old in the Bible. So this fifth blank here is not encouraging, but it is critical to know Christians are not exempt from suffering or death. This verse shows us that God's people will suffer for their faith, but it doesn't impact our standing with God because nothing will separate us from the love of God. Okay, next verse, 37. Now, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That phrase, more than conquerors, means super conquerors. Through Jesus, we are super conquerors. And this is not prosperity gospel. We literally just read verses about suffering and death. We're talking about being spiritual conquerors in this life and ultimate conquerors in the next life. So a conqueror would typically win when the battle is over. A super conqueror starts celebrating while the battle's still happening. I read in my history book about a super conqueror event. It was the first Iraqi war back in 1990. You remember uh, Iraq led by Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. President Bush the senior got about 200,000 US troops, 200,000 allies, there were UN sanctions. Japan funded it. Russia agreed to stay out of it. There were 400,000 Allied soldiers. So how did the battle go? Within hours, the Allies had knocked out Iraq's total radar system. And then for the next four days, they decimated them. They destroyed 76% of their tanks, 90% of their artillery. If you remember, I was in high school or just before high school. The, the Iraqi soldiers were so beat, they were surrendering to unarmed CNN news reporters. And as they fled back to Kuwait, they left thousands of vehicles on the way back. Saddam surrendered in five days. That's a super conqueror right there. Christian, you are a super conqueror in this life and the next because God is with you. God is for you. Last couple verses, 38. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things come, nor power nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
So in these final verses, it's like Paul is racking his mind. What could separate us from the love of God? He's like, death, life, no. Angels, demons, no. Uh, Now, the future, no. Height, depth, that's like the highs and lows of life, no. And then kind of his catch-all, he says, anything else in all of creation, the King James says, any creature, no. Christian, nothing will separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Hallelujah. This is such an amazing conclusion, these verses. I asked Natalie and Maya if they would come out here and play while I reread 31 through 39. I think it's kind of a crescendo moment, and I want this to be our prayer. Why don't you all stand up? We're just going to, I'm going to read these verses. Your last blank. Sorry, I'm so excited. (laughs) What can separate you from God's love? Nobody or nothing. So they're going to play, and I'm going to read. This will be our closing prayer. Go ahead. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Thank you.